To get us started this evening, let's read Matthew 7, just kind of introductory passage, kind of a devotional thought as well. Matthew 7, as people come in, we'll just read Matthew 7, start at 21 and go through 28. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus speaking, Sermon on the Mount, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then Jesus said, everyone, who, everyone then who hears the words of mine, these words of mine, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Let's bow for a word of prayer. We thank you, dear God, that we have your word and that we can have a true and uh, right foundation in life. We're grateful, Father, for this opportunity this evening to gather in your name. We pray, Father, that you would indeed help us to be true to your word. We pray, Father, that we may learn your word so that we can pass your teachings on to our little ones, that they too may stand strong on your foundation. Lord, we're mindful of those who have difficulties going on in, in their personal lives. We pray for each of them, Father, knowing that you know uh, exactly what is taking place. And Father, we pray your blessing on anyone this evening that's been among us who may be having some pain or trouble of any sort. And Lord, we, we pray that you would bless us in our, in our world, that the gospel may go forth. We pray, Father, that we might be able to find environments and conditions and hearts that will be receptive to your holy word. How mindful, Father, and we praise you for this. We're so mindful of your great love for us. We stand in awe, dear God, of your great power, your great love, your great wisdom. And Father, we're, we're just uh, so grateful. Our hearts are full of gratitude, Lord, for every single blessing, especially that which is found in Christ Jesus. Forgive us, Father, when we stray. Help us to look at ourselves as you would have us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Why do people leave the faith 
Why do people give up on the faith? Last week we talked a little bit about how that some folks feel far away from God. Sometimes we feel far away and that's why we walk away. That's why we never really develop the faith. Some say God is too distant. He's, he's hidden himself. The reason that there is distance, as we noticed last week, between us and God is because of sin. But some people further say that if they have been back in the time of Jesus and have been able to personally witness some of the things that he did and what happened to him, then they would surely have believed. Others say, well, if Jesus would just come or allow somebody to come and do a true miracle today, then, then, then I would believe. But... We have noticed this last Sunday and last Wednesday how that it is entirely possible to draw near to God. He'll draw near to us. Our discussion this evening will be on conviction. Conviction. When I say conviction, I mean being convinced that something is absolutely true. Conviction. Now, here are the questions I want us to consider. First of all, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? And then this question, why should one, should someone become a Christian? Why should, one, should, why should someone become a Christian? And then what is it that forms a solid conviction in Christ. What is it that develops? What is it that forms a solid conviction uh, in Jesus Christ? Okay. Now we know what conviction looks like when we read about it. And just let me mention a few in scripture. You know, Job said in Job 13, 15, though the Lord slays me, yet will I serve him. That is conviction. He was going through some very, very, very quadruple, very tough times. He said, if the Lord takes my life, I'm still going to serve him. Joshua said, chapter 24, verse 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what conviction looks like. You remember the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would not, they would not bow and serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods. They would not bow to his golden image even if it meant the fire and it did mean the fire and they said our Lord will deliver us but even if he doesn't we're not going to serve your gods Daniel 3 16 and 17 we know what conviction looks like and we can find similar statements in the gospels and in in the New Testament Jesus himself said in John 4 and 34 my my food, my meat, is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. That's conviction. That's conviction. We remember Paul, at the end of his life, he said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. You know about that, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7. Henceforth there is laid up for me that crown of righteousness. We know what conviction looks like when we read it. We also know what conviction or a lack of conviction looks like. I mean, if someone leaves the faith, that's a lack of conviction. If, if someone never does obey God, 
then that's a lack of conviction. Okay. If someone thinks more about worldly things than God's things, that's a lack of conviction. If someone is fearful of sharing the good news of the gospel, then that's a lack of conviction. And so I want us to consider the idea of conviction this evening. Now, the beginning point of faith, I don't know how to express it better. It is, it is huge. Where we start in faith and how we start in faith is about as crucial a matter as there is. We were reading this past Sunday morning with our young people uh, in Hebrews uh, 3. If you want to jump over there for a second. Hebrews 3. And we were talking about how that it is entirely possible for someone who is a believer to walk away from that faith. Hebrews 3 expresses that for us. Hebrews 3 and verse 12. Where he says, Take heed, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart, uh, an, an evil unbelieving heart, evil heart of unbelief, leading you to fall away from the living God. Look at there. A brother in Christ can actually end up having an unbelieving heart. So he says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14, for we share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast the beginning of our confidence to the end. Some translations have the word original confidence. Notice the, uh, the beginning of our confidence. We've got to hold that to the end. The beginning of our faith, the beginning of our confidence is huge. And the devil knows that. And the devil gets himself involved right there in the beginning of someone's faith. Now, most people associated with Jesus Christ, most people associated with Jesus Christ have built whatever faith they have on a faulty foundation. Most people come to Jesus originally, they come to Jesus because of a family member or because of a friend or because of some experience or because of some emotional experience or because, some, because of some benefit they think think they're going to receive by coming and associating themselves uh, with Christ. There was a youth minister that kind of related this to me. He was having lunch with several older uh, teenagers. He said, I just decided to ask him, why are you a Christian? And he said, he just kind of surprised him. He said, uh, some of them said, well, I just enjoy going to church. Others said, well, my family's always going to church. Uh, some others said, I like to be part of something that's bigger than me. Okay. And, um, and other, another kid said, I, I like it because we have cool retreats. You know. Well, but they kept giving reasons and they never got to the reason. They, all of what they said might be fine later on in the Christian life, but that's not a good start at all. That's building a faulty foundation. Now think about coming to Christ because of some benefit. 
causes some benefit. We see an example of that. I believe we do in John 6 and 26 when, when um, some have seeking out Jesus and he looked to them and he says, you seek me not because of the signs that I did, but because you ate the bread and got full on it. Jesus had just fed the 5,000 and those people evidently have been part of that feast. And so Jesus says, you're seeking me not because you want to take what I have done and seriously believe in me, but because you want some more food. You want to see if I'll do something else. See, they were coming for some shallow uh, benefit. Now, we, we cannot teach our kids. Okay? We cannot teach our kids to become Christians based on what they might get out of it. Okay? We just cannot do that. We will, we will build within them a faulty foundation. Okay? So please do not tell your kids, hey, we follow Christ because we get A, B, C. Okay? We just cannot uh, do that. There was a fellow who was sharing with me, a preacher a little while back, and he was, he was telling me that he has an in-law who is a part of the Mormon church. And he says the Mormons give two big reasons why they're Mormons. Number one, they grew up in that church. And number two, they feel like they've had some sort of inward experience that tells them that the Book of Mormon is truly from God. He said without doubt, he said he's met several of them and everyone that he met would give the same two reasons. We say, well, that's, that's ridiculous, but let's look at ourselves. Why? Why do we follow Christ? Why have we begun a following of Christ? Why are our children following Christ? And so if these things we've just mentioned, if these are faulty starts, then my discussion with you this evening is what are the proper starts? How does, how does one develop a proper start? Why should one become a Christian? How do you develop? See, it's all the same question. When we say, how do you develop a strong conviction in Christ? That's the same thing as saying, that's the same question as, why should you become a Christian? Why did I become a Christian? It's the same question. Okay. So I invite you to speak out and to express your ideas, but I'll give us a little guidance. I'll just tell you my thoughts on it, and then you can agree, disagree, and add to whatever you want to do. I think the proper starts include a recognition of sin in our lives, a recognition of the truth. It requires some common sense from Jesus, and it needs to be based on the resurrection of Jesus. And um, so that's a good enough start. So I'll just start talking about the recognition of sin, but then you add to, take away, or add to those four I just mentioned. I just mentioned the recognition of sin, recognition of the truth, some common sense that we get from Jesus and his resurrection. Okay. So why would I say that a proper start is a recognition, a conviction of sin in our lives? Why would I, why would I say that? Right. 
If you're not convicted that you're lost, which sin separates us from God, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, if we're not convicted that we're lost, then, then there's no need to look uh, for salvation. All right? What else you might say along those lines? Is it true that we're lost? Is it true that, that everyone has sin? How do we know that everyone has sin? All have fallen short, Romans 3.23. And there's none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3, 9 and 10. Okay, that's a big part. Okay, Miss Kay's saying we first got to believe that the Bible is from God. That's so very true. Okay. Think a little bit more about sin. Think about sin for a second. The reality of sin uh, in our lives. Think about some illustrations. Um, remember Jesus gave that parable in Luke 18, 9 through 14, about the Pharisee and the publican who went to the temple to pray. What is said in that parable that brings out the reality of sin? What do you remember about that? What happened there? Luke 18, 9 through 14. What, how did the Pharisee pray and how did the publican pray? Just to jump over the Pharisee because his prayer is not worth looking at. How did the publican pray? <laughs> Do what? One was in the corner. The publican was in the corner. And what's he saying? He was... Do what? Be merciful unto me... A sinner. That was his prayer. Now the Pharisee couldn't get through talking about himself and what he'd been doing, but all the publican wanted to talk about was his sin. His sin. Okay. There's a reason why Jesus expressed it uh, this way. Another illustration is on the, there on the day of Pentecost. When Peter preached, what, what was the reaction of the people who, who heard him? What was the reaction of the people who heard him who eventually obeyed? They were pricked in their heart. That's it. See? Pricked in their heart. Convicted of their sin they were. Big part of it there. Convicted of their sin. They didn't know until they listened carefully to Peter on that day that they were, they were lost. What shall we do? They said. What shall we do? Okay. And I think about Paul. So you think about the Publican, you think about Pentecost, you think about Paul. What Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15 stays with all of us. He, when he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, he said that a lot. Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? What else? Of whom I am chief. That's right. Whom I am chief. You see why... That's, that's one of the original starting points of faith. If you miss that, you're not going to be converted. It's just, it's just that simple. It's not going to be a conversion. We don't know what you might call it, but it's not going to be a conversion. Yeah, Brother Brent saying, that it's a recognition of your debt, of your debt 
that you owe to God. And it's, it's an insurmountable debt, really. But it's a debt. You know, when Jesus taught us to pray there in Matthew 6, he said, you need to pray like this, forgive us our debts. Okay, as we forgive our debtors, forgive us our debts, forgive us of our sins. Yes, exactly. The, the publican asked for mercy because he realized he, he had that debt. And he could not he could not just do this or that to repay that debt. He he was under he was basically what it is, you're crying out for forgiveness, you're crying out for grace, you're crying out for for mercy because you realize your condition without God, and it's gonna to be totally on his mercy that he that he provides our way. That's right. God gave us a law so that we can see our sin. Sin is transgression of the law. 1 John 3 verse, verse 4. You see how it's important to be inwardly transformed. Okay. Inwardly transformed. Romans 12 verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? Renewing of your mind. Inwardly transformed. And the Apostle Paul also in Romans 6 and 17, these are just verses that, that, that most of us know. Romans 6, 17, Thanks be to God that whereas you were the servants of sin, but you became obedient from the heart to that pattern of teaching that was delivered. You've got to be, it's got to be a heart transforming See? and part of that transformed heart inwardly transformed is that being convicted of sin so so very uh, important we got to be inwardly transformed you know a lot of people in religion they were outwardly engaged but they've never been inwardly transformed that's not real conversion you know a person can do the right things for years and years and years and years and never be converted. And so this recognition of sin is, is just huge. It's, it's really huge. And then once we're inwardly transformed, then what we need to do outwardly becomes pretty obvious. Okay, worshiping the Lord, sharing. The, we want other people to have this transformation too. So sharing the good news, obeying Him, worshiping, sharing the good news, living out your faith. It's not, that, it's not that complicated. Church is not that complicated. Sometimes I think we make it too complicated. It's not that complicated. Okay? We obey, we worship, we share what we have, which includes the gospel and our material possessions, and we live out our faith individually every day. And that's church. That's what the Lord calls the church. So recognition of sin. Recognition of sin. Many people, many people have gone into um, religion, into some church, and because they are um, good with people, 
because they are friendly and they can communicate well. They're thrust up into some kind of teaching role, but uh, if you looked deeply, they would they would not really convert it. It's it's, um, it's just not good. It's, it's, there's much more to religion, the religion of Jesus anyway. There's much more to his religion than simply doing the right things. It must start uh, with the heart. All right, so from recognition of sin to the recognition of the truth, where do we find the truth? Ms. Kay was talking about that a minute. Where do we find the truth and how do we know where the truth is? B-I-B-L-E, is that still your conviction? Okay, Mark mentions John 8, one of the great ones there. John 8, 31 and 32 together, I love it. John 8, 31 and 32 together. Look at that closely. Jesus said, if you continue in my words, then you are my disciples indeed. Now those words there, whose words? Jesus' words. If you continue in my words, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, make you free. Okay. So we must recognize them being convicted by the truth, the truth, so very uh, important. Yep. Some first things you had to do back when you, on your trips to Russia is to is to talk about the Word of God. Why why do we have the Bible? Why why do we consider it uh, inspired of God? Well, it all comes and centers around the Lord Jesus. It's all about Him. He is the truth. His words are truth, and this is where the power is. Jesus said that you know, as He gave the parable of the sower there in Luke eight and verse twelve. He's talking about the Word of God. This is what transforms people. This is, this is where we get our power, powerful information. The way Jesus set it up there in Luke 8, 11, and 12, He says, now the seed that goes out into these different souls, that's the Word of God. And the seed that falls on the wayside is, is comparable to this. When the seed comes into a person's heart, the first thing the devil wants to do is come get that word out of that heart lest that person should believe and be saved. Luke 8 verse 12. So that's where the power is. The devil knows where the power is. That's why he gets involved early on. Early on in our children's lives. He wants to get involved anytime there's, there's a possibility of a conversion, someone coming to Christ, the devil's going to try to get involved. He doesn't want that. He knows the power. Once that word is implanted then he knows that the fruit's going to come and that scares him to death. And that's what we're here for. We're here to terrify the Satan. Okay? We're here to terrify him. Glorify God and terrify Satan. That's why we're here. This is how we do it. So we, we recognize we're convicted by the truth. Well, the words of Jesus are the truth. That's where the power is and that's where the joy is too. That's where the joy is. Have you read uh, Second and Third John lately? John opens up those those books and he says, "I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth." And he talks about children; he's talking about his brothers and sisters in Christ. But John is so loving that he just looks at everybody as his family. He says, 
If you're a Christian, you're, you're my child, you're my brother, you're my sister. And I, my greatest joy is that you're walking in the truth. You're living out the faith. So, our second step here is to recognize and be convicted by the truth. The truth. See, this is a powerful combination. This is, this is where it must begin. There's no other way to be converted to Christ. But look at this powerful combination. Recognition of sin, convicted. Convicted by the truth of Jesus, convicted. See, on one side, you're seeing your need for the Savior because of sin. You see your need for the Savior. And then on the other side here, you are seeing the truth of the Savior. Your need for the Savior and the truth of the Savior. And you combine those two together and we're on our way to becoming a Christian. Now, Jesus, uh, let's all turn together to Matthew 13, verse 21. This is Matthew's recording of the parable of the sower. But look at something here in Matthew 13, 21. Let's have somebody read that for us real loud. Matthew 13, 21. Jesus is, is explaining the parable of the sower, how the word uh, falls on different uh, territory. Someone read, um, let's just read Matthew 13, 20 and 21 together. I think that's the way it goes. Matthew 13, 20 and 21. Okay, so this is where I was saying a minute ago, we've got to have some, some logic, common sense. Right? Jesus is helping us here. Right? So if one comes to Christ on these faulty grounds of, of because my family, because my friends, because I had an emotional experience, you know, or I've had some traditions passed down to me, or I've come to Jesus because I'm going to get this benefit and that benefit. If you come there, what happens when those benefits are taken away? What happens when those benefits are no longer there? What happens when the friend is no longer there? Okay. What happens when the good feeling is no longer there? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the good, fit, the good stuff that you think you're getting out of these faulty foundations will eventually be taken away. Tribulation is coming. That's not just, that's not a, that's not a guess, that's, that's Jesus. Many of us have lived that out in our lives to see it come. But there, the friends will go away. It's just a natural part of life. Friends will go away. The good feelings will go away. Then what do you have left? Okay, and that's what Jesus is talking about there. If you're, not, if you're coming to Christ is not based squarely on the Word of God, when the tribulation comes, then you'll have nothing left. It's just... You'll have, you'll have that foundation built on the sand. That's what we'll have. Okay. And so Jesus is saying, use your common sense here. Use your logic. Don't you see this? Don't you see where you need to build it on, on the best foundation possible? Okay. So a, little, a little common sense goes a long way, and Jesus is helping us with that. Okay. Now, uh, just one thing that happens in life is our children grow up. 
and they get to be college age and older and, and they either go off to school or they're going out on their own. Okay, those things that we lined up for them as benefits, you know, um, what are they going to do now? Okay, they're going to make some friends, but those friends are not going to last forever. People move and come and go, and there's going to be hurt feelings, and there's going to be, there's going to be betrayal, and there's going to be this and that, and then where's your faith going to be? You see what we're trying to do? We're trying to build, help our children build a strong foundation underneath. So when this tribulation comes, they will stand strong. That's our, that's our goal. That's our prayer to God. Okay. Um, Okay, Sam reading 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19, making a reference to that good foundation. That's part of the good foundation. Some of that he mentioned there is those, those um, outward works that we do because we're inwardly transformed. Okay. We're in, inwardly transformed because we've learned not to trust in riches, but in God. That's part of the inward transformation. And then therefore we're ready to give to the needy and help in ways that we can. That provide that is the good foundation we're working upon. Okay. Now, next part of our our process here. Okay, how how do we develop conviction? Okay, it has to center upon the core of the foundation is the resurrection of Jesus. Correct. The core of the foundation. We can say the truth is the truth, and it is. The Bible certainly important and it is but it really begins with the resurrection of Jesus okay. someone read for us right quick 1 Corinthians 15 14 let's read just to refresh ourselves 1 Corinthians 15 14 this is Paul's great chapter on the resurrection discussions but look at 15 14 especially All right, there you go. Thank you, Sister Sheila. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and our faith is vain. Okay. So if the resurrection is not true, then we go home. We just shut the doors, we go home, never to come back again. But it is true. Therefore, we have the, the greatest foundation. Jesus pointed to his resurrection. When people wanted to know about his identity and his authority, he would talk about his resurrection. Remember in Matthew 12, 39, some asked him, Matthew 12, 39, they said, you know, show us a sign. And what sign did he talk about then? The sign of the prophet, what? Jonah. Jonah. Why would he mention Jonah Three days, three nights in the belly of the 
of the fish. And so the Son of Man will have three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But just as Jonah come out, the Lord came up. Right? Remember Jesus said in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. They thought he was talking about the temple that had been you know, Solomon's old temple there in, in Jerusalem that had been rebuilt again and again. It took 46 years to build that thing. Jesus said he wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about his body, the temple of the body. Destroy this temple, which he knew what's happened. Three days I'll rise. When Jesus, wanted, when, when Jesus wanted to vindicate who he was, he pointed to the resurrection. And that's what we do. That's where it begins. If the resurrection is true, then we're on solid ground. This is, this is, you're talking about a starting point. This is, this is where I love to begin, you know, just because of what, what Paul says. But just think about it. If Jesus is true and the resurrection proves that he's true, then how did he view Scripture? Then from there you ask, how did Jesus, Jesus view Scripture? How did he view the book of Genesis? How did he view Noah? How did he view Isaiah? Well, he quoted from Old Testament. How did he view the Psalms? He quoted them just at Exodus. He quoted from Exodus. He, he viewed them just as they are, as they're inspired of God. How did Jesus, now that we know his resurrection is true, how, did he, how does he view marriage? How does he view the family? Okay. How, how, does, how does Jesus view the state of man? Well, he said in John 8, 24, if you die in your sins, if you believe not that I am he, you will die in your sins. He knows he knows, as the Bible teaches, and he taught it too, that we're sinful. How did Jesus view salvation? How does Jesus view baptism? Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. You see, once you establish the resurrection, then you can get to all the other issues and ask, well, how does Jesus view these things? So the resurrection is, is the key. It's the core of the foundation. I'm going to talk to you a minute now um, and you can comment all along here, but we've got about four minutes left. What about the honesty of Jesus? Do you think he was honest with you? Has, has he been honest with you as far as what he communicates? As far as what he communicates about living for him, has he been honest? Okay. Do we come to Christ because our life will work out better? Do we come to Christ because Jesus promises that things will now get a lot easier? Is that why we come to Christ? Or did Jesus paint a different picture? We only got three minutes. Did, you, did Jesus say it's going to be easy or did he paint a different picture? Take up your cross and, and follow me. Deny yourself. Okay. Yeah, he, he pictured a life the life after this life as better, but not necessarily now as being better. In fact, he almost said the very opposite of being better, right? There you go. That's the word. That's the word. Persecution. He used it again and again. This is something we need to teach our children. Okay. When they learn to understand, they need to know that coming to Christ will not necessarily be a, a, a path of roses. 
Hmm? It'd be worth every bit of it. It'd be worth it. Talk to them about heaven all day long, but don't, don't remember how we started here. Some come to Christ because I'm going to have some friends. I got, me some, I'm gonna, I got some friends. Or I got my family. Okay. Or I've got some benefits. Or I'm going to have some good emotions. Jesus never promised all that. But he promised persecution. Okay. And it's a very interesting study. I sort of started it. And I'd like for you to just take this on as, as your personal study. Follow the word persecution in the life of Jesus. And it will, it'll, you'll, you already know it, but by reading it all together, it just kind of, it kind of really uh, puts you right in your face. Um, I think First uh, Corinthians fifteen nineteen kind of speaks to what you've been talking about about having benefits, and there are earthly benefits hmm. being a Christian a lot of times. But it says that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. That's all your being a Christian for, you don't see the big picture. You know, you're not converted, as you said. The resurrection points to a life after this one. That's true. Read that again for us. First Corinthians 15, uh, 19. 15, 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. Verse 20 says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of the Very good. There you go. That's, that's a good summary passage of what we're talking about today. If we hope only in this life. And one of the, the sad conditions of, of modern followers of Jesus. Okay. And some of that would include the church. Some would just include the denominational world. But one of the sad trends of modern church is that they promise so many benefits from this world. And there are benefits, but that's not why we come to Christ. You know, we enjoy the, the fellowship together. And we enjoy the peace that comes and the purpose that comes from Christ. But our, our eyesight, our heart, is on much deeper matters, eternal matters, spiritual matters. Okay. So... Um, if you'd like to get started on, on that persecution study, Matthew chapter 10, uh, 16 and 17, uh, Jesus said, I send you out in the midst of wolves. Okay? There's lambs, sheep going out in the midst of wolves, and he says there'll be persecution. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 30, says, um, he talks about the fellowship. He says, you'll have, if you'll leave everything from me, You'll be gathered together with those others who are leaving everything for me, but there will be persecutions, Mark 10 and uh, verse 30. And um, you can add to that uh, John 16, 1 through 3, where Jesus said um, to his disciples, you know, they're going to persecute you. In fact, they're going to think they're doing God's will, his service, uh, by persecuting you. Well, isn't that something to swallow? You mean... These folks who are going to persecute me are going to be looking toward the same God, but they're going to be thinking that they're serving Him while they persecute me. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's another one. John 15, 18. The world hates you. Know that it hated me first. That's right. That's just... That's, 
to burn's life. So we've got to, what are we looking at? The persecution we're going to receive in this world or a future home in heaven. Yeah. That's going to make that burden of life. That's right. That's right. That burden's going to definitely appear light, especially when you get there and able to look back. No comparison. No comparison. All right. Thank you so much for being in class. We'll take about a three or four minute break. <laughs>